Welcome to the third episode of Deep Focus. Today, me and Nick are going to be talking about Edge of Tomorrow. There's a film directed by Doug Lehman in 2014. How are you doing today, Nick? Pretty good, pretty good. Nice. Um, actually, okay. I'm doing okay. It's not It's not a good day. It's not a bad day. It's a, <laughs> <laughs> just a day. Just standard. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, but, uh, yeah, Edge of Tomorrow. Yeah. So I, I've seen this one before. I think you probably have too. Same. I saw it in movie um, theaters, actually, in 2014. It's one of my more memorable theater experiences because the movie really got to me in the theater. Mm, I was like very cool. pumped at the end of it. And the pop song, you know, uh, Love Me Again or whatever it's called. By, uh, yeah. John Newman, I think. Mm-hmm. At the very end. It's very apt. Very uh, upbeat way to end the movie. Um, yeah. Oh, um, and... Uh, just another warning for, you know, listeners. Um, we will be talking about spoilers throughout this. So if you haven't seen the movie, it's been years, but you know, we do this every time. Yeah. Go watch the movie first, come back here afterwards. If you don't care, you don't care. Cool. There we go. So let's just go ahead and start off with the people involved. So we have Doug Lehman directing and he also produced as well. And Doug Lehman's known for... The Bourne series. He essentially produced mm. the the original trilogy of Bourne movies, and awesome. uh, he directed Mr. and Miss, Mrs. Smith and Swingers and Go and Jumper, and recently wow. The Wall. I don't know if you remember The Wall that came out in 2017. Oh I, yeah, I was not <laughs> no, <a> actually. Fan. <laughs> <laughs> we tried to watch that together. Remember, uh, and my, I just got a new projector, and oh, yeah. the audio sync was off. No, not so the Great Wall. Just, not the Matt Damon oh, oh. one. This was okay, like an okay. Iraq war movie where they're like pinned down by a sniper uh, and they were like hiding on the other side of like a stone wall. Okay, okay. So we didn't watch that together. No. I haven't seen that one. Um, um, and he also did but, this CIA like spy movie called Fair Game. So mm-hmm. those are like his big ones. I will say this. When I look over my letterboxed like rankings, like I don't use the five star system. I just like I have a like if I liked it, and I have only just like a watched if I didn't like it, you know? Yeah. And uh out of the six movies I've seen, three I like and three I just have a watched <laughs> simple. So it's very fifty fifty. Yeah. Oh, but I do really love the Bourne trilogy. It is uh, good. The original trilogy, especially the first one. It's incredibly um, rewatchable. It's like one of those movies yeah. you just keep coming back to. Um, I actually really like the second one too. I like them all, um, man. They're all real. Yeah, watchable. me too. Like I, I always watch all three when I'm yeah, watching them. <laughs> exactly. <I'm>... And <laughs> the fact that I've watched them more than once. <laughs> it's the highest compliment yeah. you can give. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, well, yeah. So this, um, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to make a comment here. It looks like we're getting a sequel to Edge of Tomorrow, which I didn't realize until I was looking this really? all up today. And he's going to be producing it and directing it by the looks of it. It's called cool. Make the Future, Live, Die, Repeat, or Live, Die, Repeat, and Repeat. So I feel like the first title is better because the second title is a little uh, on the nose. <laughs> I know. Well, that's the funny <laughs> thing about this is it has two titles. It has Live, Die, Repeat, and Edge yes. of Tomorrow. It's yeah. based on a graphic novel. It was written by, uh, I can't, let me find his name real fast. but uh, I actually have it right here. Hiroshi. Um, Yes. However you say the last uh, name. Sakura Zaka. Sakura Zaka. <laughs> Sakura Zaka. That's such a badass last name. Sakura. Yeah. Like Sakura um, Square. But I definitely um, want to read that graphic novel. Have you seen it? 
Have you read that? Uh, no, actually. And uh, there was also a, a manga adaptation before. Um, oh, was it an anime? anime? Uh, no, no, it wasn't an anime yet, but it was just uh, like a comic book. But actually, I, I, that's one thing that I really wanted to talk about with this film is I think that this is one of the best uh, like manga to Western film adaptations ever. I completely agree. And part of the reason is because they don't try to do like they don't try to do the anime style, the manga style. Right. As... And I think it maybe that has to do with the uh, the style of the original source material as well, where uh, it, it was definitely kind of like a, a darker story. <laughs> yeah. Um, kind of along the vein of, I don't know, Death Note or um, I don't know, like Cowboy Bebop, where it's not like, actually, you know what? I shouldn't say Cowboy Bebop because that's very exaggerated, but um, oh, uh, no, that's exaggerated too. Yeah, it's like oh, a dark what? story uh, mixed with Groundhog Day. <laughs> you know, it's one of those movies. <laughs> yeah. Um, what what is that one? Ghost in the Shell or Ergo Proxy? Okay. You know, like that in that kind of vein. I feel like. Um, yeah, I could see Ghost in the Shell uh, being something you could say similar tone, similar uh, darkness. Right. Um, I do believe that they changed the ending i i think so as well like i don't think you should go into this expecting a faithful adaptation of the graphic novel or if you're a big fan but yeah i think if you end up watching this movie you really like it it'd probably be worth looking into the graphic novel certainly on my list now to check out yeah uh, and it's a fun you know me and nick both like this movie i'll just go out and say that like it's a really fun blockbuster so if that's sort of your thing you should definitely watch this because any more these days uh blockbusters at least in my opinion aren't as good as they used to be in you know but this one's definitely up there for me yeah uh, but speaking of good blockbusters of the past one of the producers was erwin stoff and he produced get this the matrix i am legend constantine 13 hours unbroken the day the earth stood still street kings and that's just like his like action blockbusters. He also did like this year's The Call of the Wild, Water for Elephants, Devil's Advocate, The Blind Side, A Scanner Darkly, and some Austin Powers movies. So pretty pretty good talent right there. I like that guy's filmography. That'd be pretty legendary. Yeah. Also, in terms of some other producers, we do have Jeffrey Silver, and he's a big Disney person. He did The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. Or is that one okay. coming out? Um. Wait, what? The, oh, yeah. No, that one came game? out. Yeah, recently. the new one that came out. Well, I meant Beauty and the Beast. I, I forgot that, yeah, that came, one came out, out too. Yeah, but he also did Ghost in the Shell, which is really weird. I wonder if he's like one of these guys that's driving Hollywood to try to add up, you know, to turn anime yeah. Yeah, into Western See, movies. I think one of the big problems with how they adapt anime um, is that they, I feel like they tried to Westernize it a little too much and they, they, they kind of fail to walk this line where like people that are that try to stay really faithful to the story also end up staying faithful to the style you know yeah. and we've talked about this before but um let me actually just reiterate it um but i think one of the big reasons why um western cinema audiences uh not not western audiences in general but it's pr particularly uh you know people who are um into film right yeah um i think 
the reason that they have such a hard time getting into anime is because they kind of see it as uh, over the top or ridiculous. Exaggerated. And well, that's the thing, right? Is that um, I, I think that there's a disconnect where um, a lot of it has to do m- more with how the moment feels and less with how the moment is, right? It's, it's not as literal. And mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of exaggeration used um, as a stylistic choice, right? So like you'll see someone jump 40 feet above someone's head, you know, to attack them. Yeah. And, and give a you speech know, while doing it. <laughs> right. And, and it's ridiculous, but it's not about what's actually happening. It's about how it feels. Yeah. Right. No, absolutely. Um, People just need and, to find their, their way of getting into it. You need to find that show right. that actually opens you up to it or that movie. Right, right. But uh, the one thing I want to point out is that whenever it's brought to the West, um, they either stay faithful to this, this style of exaggeration, which I don't think translates to live action film. Not at all. Um, yeah. Or they try to westernize it too much. And I actually think that that was the problem with this uh, film uh, for me towards the end, where it ended up feeling very, very westernized, very roller coastery, you know. Um, and I mean that in like an amusement park producer way. Sure. Right. Um, it's interesting where, then that this guy, Jeffrey Silver, is behind both this movie and Ghost in the Shell, which is like two sides of the coin, you know. Ghost in the right, Shell right. tried to be too faithful to that exaggeration, and this one was a westernization of like essentially the the plot and characters. Right, know? and maybe what he's doing is he's kind of trying his hand, trying to find that like yeah that perfect. I mean, I think ground. even with uh, what you're saying here in terms of it becoming too westernized, uh, I still think it's one of the best versions. Oh yeah, we've seen. no, I think I think it's definitely better to lean in that direction um, yeah. to to overly westernize it than it is to. Um, bring that exaggeration to live action because that just unless you're tarantino that just doesn't work yeah you know <laughs> and you know tarantino is very self-aware of it and you know um uses it as a stylistic choice in the same vein but yeah when you're trying to make a serious movie like you know edge of tomorrow it would be very difficult to sell that um as well as the stylistic over exaggeration of anime yeah because it'll almost um, make it ridiculous, you know, for right, Western right. But I, I, um, I do want to actually like this is one of the reasons the graphic novels like on my reading list now because it's like I do want to like compare and see like it really interests yeah. me to like see how people adapt comic books because even like in the, all the superhero movies we're getting now, very rarely are they like adaptations of previous material. Like even the Dark Knight was like loosely inspired by the killing joke but wasn't like adapted right. from it you know so I'm, I'm reading the plot summary here of the graphic novel and it seems like one of the big differences is that rita also still had the power throughout the entire uh story and they oh. never lose it um but essentially like for, for some reason it seems like uh Let's see. So they're trapped. They they both get trapped in the loop at the end. Okay. Because only like w- only one like looper can leave the loop, right? So then the um so that's a big one, change essentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it, basically it has to be one of them, right? Yeah. So meaning them meaning one of them has to die before they kill the nexus. Mm. Right. So otherwise the loop will continue indefinitely because they're both considered like alphas or something. 
Weird. Right. So base so uh yeah, just to give the audience, like, if you decided not to watch this, essentially, just yeah, like yeah. a quick 20 second thing is it becomes Groundhog Day. Tom Cruise is like essentially a propagandist for the Earth's united military at this point. They're fighting this alien force that has control over time. No one realizes this. These out and they have these minor creatures, which are like gold, orange, and then they have the alphas, which are blue. And whenever the blue alpha is killed in the battlefield, uh, time is reset by like the hive mind alien and they restart the day so that this way the hive mind alien really can't lose because it could just keep replaying it could keep respawning um the day and so tom cruise is threatens a general he threatens the head general and the head general uh essentially uh screws him over and sends him into combat the next day as punishment and he dies but he kills an alpha and the blood fuses with him and so now technically this hive mind views him as an alpha. And so whenever he dies, the day resets. No one knows, but he does. And then he ends up finding Emily Blunt's character who also had this power previously. And that's but how she became it. this legendary war hero, but lost it because you lose it if you get a blood fusion. And she didn't know that until she lost it. And so essentially he has to use it because the alpha is trying to hunt him down, not the alpha, but the hive mind is trying to hunt him down to essentially get rid of his blood so he can stop resetting the day. And so he's in a sort of a competition with both the sort of corrupt and competent leadership of the military and this alien army in order to track down the hive mind and kill it. And his only allies, Emily Blunt, but he, Emily Blunt each time every day is the same Emily Blunt as the previous day because she doesn't know who he is and he has to tell her again what happened and so on and so forth. And uh, they win, you know, it's as simple as that. Yeah. They do end up getting a blood transfusion uh, on Tom Cruise and they end up both dying at the very end when they kill the hive mind. But Tom Cruise starts up the previous day again, but even earlier. And it's like, well, it's oh. because he blows up the hive mind and the blood of the hive mind goes into him. Exactly. So he ends up going back. So and I guess so that means he can, that at the end they of the fell movie, in love too. And power. so exactly. So I'm wondering what yeah. they'll do with the sequel, but uh in this way, you know, he ends up having his love story. You know, this is a really good ending. They cut it at such a perfect moment. They do. Where that, he walks that, I love that ending. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, one thing that I want to talk about is on this rewatch, I kind of, I kind of realized that the moment that it becomes very, very Hollywood. And uh, what I mean by that, when I say Hollywood, is that I feel that it's overly produced. You know, to the point where um, they're they're relying on things that have worked before or standards of how they, you know, um, do plot. Sure. Right. Um, instead of, instead of thinking about the meaning of the story and thinking about the way that it should go, you know, to, uh, propagate the message of the yeah, story. It doesn't have a know? deep meaning. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, and I, I feel that after, after Tom Cruise, uh, cage, gets his blood transfusion mm -hmm. um that is the moment where the movie becomes very hollywood for me because you know yeah, I, the I ending is the least solid part it really is yeah. like not the very ending but like the we're gonna attack them in our airship with our squad of people like right. everything well, and up and to the that reason, is very fun and interesting right the reason that i think it is uh that's the case is because um like i can i can just imagine in the writing room them you know a producer coming in and being like all right raise the stakes yeah you know <laughs> i mean the um, thing is if you've watched movies at all and you you fancy yourself as a person that's able to catch these foreshadows the moment you're told 
that if you get a blood transfusion, you're out of it. You're like, oh, well, that's going to happen, you know? Right. It's and then when, uh, and then when uh, it does happen and they're like, oh, this is our last life, you know, that now this is the time for the, you know. Yeah. And you're right. It's so lazy because they even they raise the stakes in the sense of they get kidnapped by the general after finally convincing him during this day that all this shit's happening and he gets, he's about to get like dissected. But like Emily Blunt just comes in and saves him out of like nowhere you know what i mean like it's right, just like right. they just did it so that he could get a blood transfusion and well, then and rita comes think, in and is like okay now let's go <laughs> i think the reason that this happened was because uh I, i'm guessing that they didn't want to kill rita right because yeah. in the in the in the light novel and the manga um rita has to die mm-hmm. right um because only only one of them can um you know yeah move on um and they're both like looping over and over so but not i'm guessing i'm guessing they didn't want to kill rita because because western audiences in general do not like it when you kill the love interest which i actually don't agree with um i i think the perfect example of that um took place in the silver age of comic books with uh spider-man oh yeah they yeah, killed his totally love interest right. and everyone loved it right and not sorry everyone didn't love it everyone was traumatized but <laughs> everyone kept reading because yeah. it was good right i think when you kill the love interest um without reason you know or just to make the audience sad that's when it feels forced and annoying you know yeah but I don't know. I think if they did it this way, it would have been fine. But I could see, I could see why producers would be hesitant to push this out there with a, you know, they have all that funding behind it. They're scared that yeah, you know, a... audiences won't like it if she dies. So they're like, all right, we're not going to kill her. How do we make this work? Right. Yeah. And I mean, if they you're had not a budget kill her, of $175 million. So there's considerations to be made. Right. Right. And, I, I totally understand where they're coming from, but at the same time, I never, ever, ever, ever agree with making decisions about your story out of fear. I agree. Um, you should always say be that as ultimately and, it was it was still good. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Well, and if I can finish this, um, I, I also think that any um, I, I do think fear has its place in a production, and I, I do think it's stupid to not be fearful in a production. Right. Mm. But in terms of the writing as a um, as an independent art form, I don't think that you should ever, ever bring fear into it. I think it's important to be as bold as possible with the writing. Yeah. Um, And then once you're in the production phase and then you're looking at, um, you know, how this budget's going out, uh, the quality of certain things coming in, then you can have some fear. Right. You can um because that's the only that's the only way to do it right mm-hmm. you can't no, that's uh, healthy i mean look it, it <laughs> yeah was when you're dealing with 175 million dollars you yeah. know you can't you can't like it looks like they the barely sm- made their the money back amounts, too i mean worldwide gross yeah. is 370 so they're barely just got a sequel out of this you know what i mean yeah like and were... and with the small amounts that we make our films with like i already like fear so much that's gonna go wrong <laughs> yeah you know well, like we don't um, have like 
it's it's true when you're at the smallest budget versus when you're at the highest budget is when you're gonna have the most fear when you make something because right smallest budget you don't have money to make a mistake and the highest budget right. is you have so much money that you can't make a mistake right you know? right <laughs> um yeah. but i guess what i'm saying is i understand where they're coming from but i think that taking um taking your fear and focus grouping to the writing room is the wrong choice because right. if everybody knew exactly what makes a great story, you wouldn't need writers. True. You know? um, well, and even to, I want to say one last thing about Jeffrey Silver, but then I want to yeah. go into the writers real fast is he also did 300, which is a produced 300, which is a Western comic book by Frank Miller adapted. Uh, so interesting. This guy does comics, but if we go over to the writers real fast, yeah, we have Christopher McQuarrie, Tom Cruise's oh, like right hand awesome. man now. Yeah. And he's, of course, uh, he wrote, I believe, directed both uh, Rogue Nation and Fallout. Is that mm -hmm. correct? And I he don't also, know if he wrote it, but I know he directed it. Well, he, yeah, he wrote both. I'm not sure he directed oh, did he? it. I'm looking at it cool. right now. Yeah. No, no, and he, he directed them. So, and he, you know that he, if you know that he wrote them, I know. <laughs> okay, he wrote he directed, directed both of them. So, yeah. And he did, he writ, wrote Usual Suspects. He wrote and directed, uh, mm -hmm. or no, he wrote Jack Reacher. I believe he might have directed it too. And uh, he wrote The Tourist, Valkyrie, and also The Mummy movie that came out recently with Tom Cruise. I actually want to see that. Still I haven't, haven't seen, that seen it. Apparently, okay. it's not good, but I think he might like it then. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of have a soft yeah. spot for blockbusters that are deemed not good. Um, yeah. And then we have uh, Jez Butterworth, who is also a writer on this. There's a lot of writers on this. And he recently wrote yeah. both the Ford and Ferrari, Spectre, which is sort of like one of the least good of the uh, Daniel Craig 007s, mm -hmm. and Black Mass. Those are sort of like his big ones. And okay, then so that... we have John Henry Butterworth. So I think it's a brother team, and they essentially work on everything together. Okay. So I think um, Christopher McQuarrie got the last uh, say on this script, though, if I remember correctly. He... Yeah. Honestly, it's not bad, right? Like, I wouldn't go at this and say that it's bad um, at all. Uh, I think a, it's, a very, it's a very, very good, good movie. Buster. It's yeah. solid. Um, and my criticisms for it really only stem from um, like the machine, right? We don't, we don't know who makes those decisions. The system, the <laughs> <You know>? system <laughs> man. From the outside, it's really hard to look at it and understand why they chose to soften the yeah. ending like they did. You have to engage in some like hermeneutical interpretation. Like, hmm, we have to yeah. divine what sort of decisions were made behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> well, usually I feel like it's a producer um, that makes those kind of decisions. I could be wrong. Maybe the writers came in and decided that was a good idea. You know, um, yeah. that American audiences don't like it when you have an ending like this. Maybe, maybe they just wrote it that way at first and then realized it was horrible. Who knows? You know? Um, but I don't know because maybe maybe the other thing is that they decided that they would like it more if only one character could uh, loop. Yeah. Right? And that could have been the the uh, spawning point for the rest of the decisions that changed uh, the story. Right. Um, Look we at don't this. really we don't really know why it happened. But yeah, go ahead. Well, I just started, I was like, well, let's figure it out. We have Google at our fingertips. So Doug Lehman, mm -hmm. uh, this is a paraphrasing, but eight weeks before production was set to begin on Edge of Tomorrow, Lehman wasn't satisfied with the third act, the act that we have an issue with. He had two thirds <laughs> okay. of the script completely rewritten and worked through five writers. 
Oh. And apparently tension built between him, Cruz, and Emily Blunt. So. Uh-oh. Um, five writers? Yeah, I think I went through five, or did I go through four? I'm not sure. You, there might, you, you know, you, sometimes you don't get credited, right? Or you get credited yeah. for story and not writing, and I'm only looking at writing credits. So. That's, I, I never think it's a good sign when, um. It's never a good sign. Sometimes a good movie's made that way, but you're right. It's never a good sign. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, I've seen very few movies that are good that have more than three writers. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a it's a rare gem when you find one like that. Um. So, this was three weeks before production. Let's see. Eight weeks before, so two months. Eight weeks. Okay. Yeah. That's still but that's still a lot for a movie of this size, you know. Apparently, yeah. Tom Cruise wasn't phased at all, according to this article. Uh, Tom Cruise doesn't seem like he'd be phased by anything. He's like one of those radically positive kind of people. Like, I'm so positive, man. Yeah. Um, I've heard that he's like really, really awesome to work with on set. Lehman, though, he seems like sort of a badass kind of guy. I mean, he's, he's got a quote here. I make movies for me and posterity. I'm more scared of history than I am of the studio. Apparently, he, you know, it's no secret that my process is a little bit loose. And I can be a little bit infuriating to a studio if they don't know what they're signing up for. Mm. So maybe, you know, maybe it's not the studio. Maybe everything can really be held. Uh, maybe Lehman can be held responsible for everything, you know? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely sounding like the case, actually, now that we go more into it. But um, I, I want, you know, one thing that I wonder is um, if he was a fan of the source material. Hmm. Yeah, um, you, you know, they all have different uh, ways of uh, approaching source material. Me and you definitely have more of a philosophy, not the same, but very similar in the sense that we view that if you're using source material, you should respect it in a big way. But not every director has that perspective, you know? Right, right. Even if they like it, you know, they might think, you know, they might have this idea of how widely different the well, formats I, are. I think you can, I think, like, for example, I think the liberties taken on um on this film are actually okay like i i never mind if there's a stylistic difference even if it's massive from the source material um the the main thing that i always think though is that if you're going to do it you have to be true to the um intention of the source material and mm -hmm. i think if that changed in this um if you didn't meet uh the intention i could see why fans of the original source material might be upset. Um, yeah. And I think it would be justified. Uh, I don't know if they were. I, I don't think that it did, it... did it have a huge fan base beforehand? Because I'd never heard of it before this movie. I think it was more of an underground thing. I don't think it had as much of like a fan base as some of the bigger, you know, uh, Japanese... Yeah, it seems comics. like it was critically acclaimed in Japan. Yeah. Um, but... It seems like it'd be interesting. I looked at like stills from the graphic novel and it looks very cool. So Yeah. Who knows? Um, well, I think we can put this at the feet of Doug Lehman. I don't know if he had Final Cut, but it looks like he has power. You know. Well, right. And guy. our 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 problem, or I mean my problem at least, and I guess sort of yours too was um it started from the third act, right? Yeah. Um yeah. the third act. And is it was it was just noticeably like 
I, I felt like the soul just left the story for the last third of the movie. Yeah. And what emotion you have is earned from the first two acts. You know I mean? It's not. Yeah. So um, it, it's him realizing what's happening and then it's him sort of growing into that warrior and his relationship, uh, you know, forming with Rita. Right. Yeah. And that, I feel like the script and if they only had two months to write the script, because I think a lot of, a lot of, um, producers and directors even sometimes especially if they're not writers um sometimes underestimate the time it takes to write something um and it's it's the same thing as um let me just link this to video games really quick it's the exact same thing as when um you give uh game designers a short amount of time to work on something you can give it to the best designers in the world right and if you give them too little time the game will be shitty and you, you pass right? it from one person to the next. <laughs> right. And yeah. it's very and rare in those circumstances. Yeah. I think writing a script is exactly the same where I feel like when you're going into it and when you're getting into that headspace to write a script, there's so much complexity that goes on and it's really about, it's really about shaving away the nonsense. It's not about figuring out what happens. Right. Agreed. Um, yeah. And there's an interesting thing to be, out there as well as like how was what was the writing process was it essentially doug lehman dictating writing to these people and him having you know several different people essentially taking dictation and filling in the spaces or was he like literally you know or was he literally handing it out and being like do it over again to this guy do it over again to that guy so on yeah um and yeah if if he came in two months before the movie was supposed to be in production and said rewrite two thirds of this (laughs) redo 66 percent of this film you know that's that's a lot that's a lot to put on some writers and it's surprising how good it is then at the same time though yeah but what i see in this third act is uh writing tropes right Mm -hmm. you have you have the plant and payoff of the characters that you brought in from the beginning right and uh you have the the hero's speech and then like you get into the action hey, scene hey, where hey, I know you like speech. I won't Don't tolerate any that. negative words. It's still a speeches. trope. <laughs> <laughs> Not saying that there can't be good ones. I'm just saying that it can be used as a crutch to bypass any speeches uh... and monologues. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, and see this thing. I don't think that tropes are bad at all. I, I don't think a trope is inherently bad. And I don't think that people should use that as a criticism. Um, as an ends in criticism, right? Yeah. But the whole problem with tropes is that um, they can be used as a crutch to get you from point A to B in writing without understanding what really lies there. Yeah. Right. And it, it's 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 the, formulaic is almost it, what I think you're. It's the amusement the park that, mentality where they're yeah. like, okay, this will get the audience through this part. They're not thinking about what the audience is feeling in this part and why that matters to the overall story. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And I think, I, I think you can usually, uh, like if you take the whole movie and you apply it to the last scene, right. And you find a, even a general meaning, you know, there might be parts that stand out extremely, which mean one of two things, either you've gotten the ending, com- like the meaning completely wrong. Right. Or yeah. that part was completely unnecessary. Sure. Um, and the fact that we kind of came into this and we were like, okay, this third act feels very off. It feels very Hollywoody and formulaic. There's a lot of tropes in there, right? 
Yeah. Um, and honestly, it felt rushed. Like it felt, it felt like they didn't have the time to go in depth, so they had to rely on trope. And these might be great writers too. And I know for a fact that Christopher uh, McQuarrie, McQuarrie is, yeah, right. And despite despite you handing this off to a great writer, if they only have such a short amount of time to deal with it, they're not going to be able to, you know, work a miracle with it. And you can't ask that of somebody, you know. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I kind of want to. I kind of want to know what the original third act is supposed mm. to be interesting um, Here, i'm looking at an article mm. let me see do a control f search here i think they the entire third act was reshot it was reshot hold on i may be wrong so, okay yeah let's get oh yeah no uh think they did do some reshooting from what i'm seeing here i'm looking over various articles there's not one that's like really in depth going over it very interesting so yeah it looks like the the issue they even knew it was an issue so i wonder how bad it was or i wonder if it was better beforehand yeah i'm wondering if it was actually because it might have been bad right like even saying that we have an issue with what it was like, I am no stranger to having your production completely fucked up. Yeah. Um, and I know how that goes. And I, I've done rewrites to save uh film before. Yeah. But like, I've always had a, if you're going to do a rewrite and better be better than the original mentality. And I don't care how long it takes for me to rewrite it. Uh, my longest rewrite took me eight months, right? Um, I just paused production and I'm like, we're, <laughs> yeah, we're, that's uh, what we met when you were in that eight month period. Right. Um, and I was rewriting it for eight months because it needed to be, it needed to be something that conveyed, it conveyed what I was trying to say in the film, but in a better way. Right. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't going to be satisfied until it did that. Um, Interesting. There's some quotes here from Christopher McQuarrie. Sorry to interrupt. Sure. Yeah, go ahead. But uh, we reshot 36 pages of the script in 12 days. The studio didn't believe in the movie enough to give us more. So apparently they even wanted to reshoot even more than that many pages. Okay. So they're, they're also saying that the studio didn't believe in the film. Well, they let them reshoot 36 pages. So they believed to some degree. I just don't think... <laughs> I think they cut it off at some point. Well, I, yeah. I mean, I feel like... Honestly, I feel like studios usually give the green light to some reshoots. Um, yeah. I mean, it's because, a fairly standard thing on movies that are over 100 million is like things right. get reshot a few times. Because they'd rather have, they'd rather put a little more into it than lose it all. Exactly. Right. Um, but with him saying that they would, they didn't believe in it to give us more, that makes me feel like there was they, a fight. <laughs> yeah, there there was, was a fight over there the was a disagreement, movie, right? Where, movie. yeah, um, very interesting. It's cool how good of a movie they ended up making, though. You know, like we have an issue with this third act, but like it's a good movie. It's yeah. a solid blockbuster, and uh, I think it's one of the best blockbusters of of the two thousand tens. You know, um, sure. so. 
but it's interesting you know you never give up you even hear stories like one one of these days we'll have to like watch the documentary about apocalypse now and talk about it in terms of just like the hell production that was and he never oh, gave yeah. up you know he never gave up and he made a classic so right um yeah i really want to know what the original um was it was it do you think it was doug lehman that said that like hey maybe maybe what happened was the producers because sorry let me let me start at a different place here producers are actually often the the actual fans of the source material Mm. um and they end up backing the whole project as a result right um i think a perfect example of this is alita battle angel okay right um was it it was james cameron right um, he was sitting on that for like 10 years, I think. Yeah. And then he gave it to Robert Rodriguez. Right. Um, and, and it was like greenlit three weeks after released the second one, which you don't really do that unless you're a huge fan of the source material. And it also like made good money, you know, as opposed to what it was projected to That's do. So um, that always helps. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm actually not sure if it, if it, even evened out before there was greenlit, but I might be wrong. Um, but yeah, maybe the producers were a big fan of the source material. And then when Doug Lehman wanted to reshoot the third act, um, they might've not been on board. Mm. Um, I don't know. And sometimes depending on whatever, uh, whatever contract you sign, you know, it does look like there's lots of deleted scenes. Uh, I'm looking at like various versions, uh, home video versions. So I'm wondering okay. if we ever, if I ever bought this, if I would be able to sort of, you know, piece, look, <laughs> piece of piece mail. It the... together. Yeah. With the decisions and yeah. why certain things were made. Um, that's honestly a great way to learn about movies though. Is that's, that was, the majority of my film education was special oh, yeah. features on disc Buy your movies. Like, yeah, subscribe to streaming and you can stream and you can, you know, do your streaming rentals. But if you like a movie and you watched it several times, you should just buy it and then, re- you know, and go to blu-ray.com with the blu ray.com find the best edition with the most, uh, special Content. features and yeah. buy that. I totally agree with that. Um, but yeah, uh, so let's uh we've pretty much covered the third act and possibly what was going on but one of my favorite parts of the movie was the editing <laughs> yeah i thought the editing was like really slick who, and who really was the amazing. editor well get this it's james herbert who is essentially guy ritchie's editor he did sherlock holmes man that from uncle the gentleman so much sense king arthur, did he do Rock king and arthur? yeah yeah so that- by the way, that is a movie that we should cover at some point because I think that is the most underrated movie of that year. Probably, yeah. I remember that. Um, and we should also do, uh, what is that? The Western, The Lone Ranger, I think. Because that was also yeah. a movie that was like universally panned. And then I watched it and I was like, what are you fucking talking about? It's just another example of critics not being right. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, so what else about this movie? Uh, we kind of talked about the writing. Um third act was a little weak but not enough to not enough to ruin the movie at all yeah i mean Um, it was shot i mean i think i like the visuals a lot one thing i want to say before we get into cinematography is i really do like the cg work on the aliens they have this intangible feel to them like they're almost immaterial 
You know, they almost have like a yeah. digital glitch effect. Well, they, they felt very alien. Um, yeah, they're very good. I got to admit it. And you can't even really make them out early on. And as it goes on, you get to see more and more detail. But like they have this effect, like it's almost like your streams lagging and it's pixelating. And right. it makes them feel very lethal and very otherworldly. And they're just, you know, they're beautifully designed. They're like these almost, you could say like, uh, I want to say octopus, but like less than an octopus. They just got like... They're just made of appendages and a head, essentially, and they. They're yeah, they kind of look like scary Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, demonic scary Pokemon. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so I would say a plus to like the world building, like even the exoskeleton suits. Definitely, that the soldiers fight in are really so, cool. Something I do want to bring up though is that um, I wonder how much of that is is um. Is a resonance from the the source material. Well, great. I mean, if it is, you know, I mean, it's cool. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, just because, you know, so with these things, it's really hard to tell um, because sometimes there's something so brilliant that was touched upon in the source material that it carries through. And I think the Spider-Man uh, movies are a very good, uh, a very good representation of this idea because I personally don't think there has been a single Spider-Man director that has understood the point of Spider-Man, regardless of the point of Spider-Man being the most famous <laughs> line in all of comic books. I know. Right? We got um, hey, to save this for your Spider-Man yeah, episode. <laughs> yeah. But my point is, even when, even when Spider-Man is done incredibly poorly, that mm. somehow finds its way through. Right yeah um like the magic of spider-man finds its way through and even when it's not spider-man even when spider-man isn't what spider-man is supposed to be somehow it still carries the spider-man feeling you know and the spider-man world building and i think it's because the source material is so profound and so good that it just it's almost impossible to screw it up even though you know interesting god damn have we tried yeah. <laughs> um but well, i wonder no, if this uh, is one of those situations because I'm, I'm looking at the cover for the light novel and the yeah, exosuit looks exactly the same really i'm looking at it and it and uh they they're almost like in full body armor in terms Are of they? like some of the pages maybe of maybe i'm looking novel. at a different uh, yeah thing. i see that cover as well and i sort of see what you're seeing but if you like look at like actual pages like he's sort of in the cover he's sort of like half in half out and when it's like fully on it's like almost full armor okay yeah um here let me just look at i mean it's similar and obviously they keep certain things like the the exoskeleton suit like it's it's all in like uh uh japanese i think yeah and, oh, so geez. like it speaks in this japanese book things is like that gory <laughs> yeah uh and also, like some of these screenshots of it are like in black and white. So I'm I really like, wonder if they would have been able to make more money if they made this a hard R movie. Maybe I don't know if Tom Cruise does that though. He seems very much like the PG thirteen. Like I don't even think the Mission Impossible's are are they? Tom Cruise wasn't a producer though, was he? No, but he's 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 part of. Well, I think he might be actually. Let me check. But he's a part of it all. You know. Okay. Okay. No, he wasn't a producer. Okay, so that means they approached him with it. Yeah. So, but he's a very him. involved yeah. actor, you know, like. 
and also just knowing that he did all of the stunts as well when you're watching it or it's always a cool thing to know because all the crazy things that you have to do apparently emily uh, blunt did that as well so that's very cool like he psyched her up to do it she is a badass actor by the way she's amazing she's definitely yeah, one of my everything actresses. that she does is brilliant um, yeah i can't wait for uh a quiet place to you that's one of my yeah. like, number one sad parts of uh this year so far was like i wasn't able to see i think it's called antlers and i wasn't able to see quiet place 2 and i was like i wanted yeah. to see those movies so badly and i oh I don't, so you, you know what sucks i think the king knocked a quiet place off of my top 20 for the decade oh <laughs> um i love a quiet place me too it was so good yeah um well let's go to the cinematographer is he's got a great name dion bb or dion beeb either i don't know <laughs> but <laughs> he uh did movies like collateral which is another great tom cruise movie he also did the the ryan reynolds uh, green lantern um chicago gangster squad which was a beautiful movie even though it has its issues he did angley's gemini man he did that great almost b movie action movie equilibrium which i love okay. uh he yeah, did the, yeah, I love the that new movie. mary poppins with emily blunt as well but he did this really underrated movie there's a bunch of other movies in there like miami vice 13 hours uh, mm-hmm. memories of the geisha but he did this really underrated movie which is like one of those that was sort of panned but i saw it with uh our good friend Jeremiah and we loved it called the snowman and part of the reasons we loved it was it was a really cool detective movie shot really well and it's Michael Fassbender sort of like a Nordic t- detective movie I think it takes place in Norway or Sweden okay but yeah I think this guy's talented frankly I look at his filmography and I'm like you know he might be the guy I think about most when I think about cinematography but now he's definitely in my head between equally around the snowman and tomorrow collateral collateral was like one of the first showcases of digital technology filming wise that hollywood ever did so mm-hmm. he's definitely uh contributed to changing cinematography then in a big way because europe initially with all its independent film with dogma 95 are the ones pushing like small handheld cameras but collateral mm-hmm. is like one of the first initial hollywood movies made with digital cameras that weren't handheld and uh it's a really interesting watch with jamie fox and tom cruise it's like a crime movie it's interesting it's hard to describe but yeah um and then uh music yes this is uh other than maybe the third act this is like the other thing that's probably the weakest we got christopher beck or christoph beck yeah and he did ant he did the ant-man movies he also did the hangover movies he did both frozen movies uh, in some other movies, he's got a lot of blockbusters you'd recognize the name of, but you'd never think of on your own. Like right. Due Date, Date Night, Red, uh, I honestly, American like, Made, Percy Jackson. Looking at all these movies, I can't... He did Electra. <laughs> I can't think of the soundtrack for any of these. And I'm, I'm, no. I'm very, very good at... Like, you've seen me listen to stuff and play it on the piano. Oh, yeah. You know, I'm very good at pinpointing uh melody but you know actually i think that might be a a common factor in his um his scores is that it's almost meant to be invisible Um, it's all it's very standard is all i can say when i was re-listening of this soundtrack number one we don't think this episode's going to be long enough for a break so we're not going to use one of his songs from enter tomorrow but when i was listening to the soundtrack of enter tomorrow to see if there was like any standout songs 
There was really not. And it's like, you feel like you've heard the score on 10 other different movies. Um, yeah, you don't, it doesn't pop out to you when you're watching it. It doesn't suck necessarily, but it could be like a lot better. Um, well, go for it. I, I, I think of it this way. It's the same. It's the same exact thing as using like standard cinematography or, you know, just getting your coverage shots or focus group writing, you know, yeah. where it's this, it's this kind of, you have rules for how you write for certain parts of the movie. You know, you're like, Oh, I'm going to use these instruments and these kettle drums when there's action. Um, you know, and then, you say okay, and then we're gonna have the the strings hold high note while um, we have the low note or the bass moving on every uh, fourth, right? Yeah. And it's yeah, just, I totally understand. I totally get it. it it's just uh, <laughs> I'm just, I'm music. I'm illiterate when it comes to music. I can feel it, but I don't. Well, I, I'm trying to like, I'm trying to say it in a simple-ish way. <laughs> you know? Um, no, I get it. I'm just joking with you. But yeah, no, it, it's it kind of feels like that where it, it feels like he has rules for how he writes and he gets through a lot of work really fast and it's good. And I, the, the thing is, these people, when when they have he's a hired gun, essentially, yeah, he when gets they do the job things like done. this, yeah, th- these people are usually people that can write really good stuff and they usually do on their own, you know, but they they just take these jobs and their jobs and they you know they make their money you know and they do it fast and they get get it over with i mean that's one of the most interesting things about uh composing in cinema not only that all these composers you know you know rewind a couple hundred years would have been making money just composing music but now the fact that all these composers have to make money composing for film but one of the most interesting aspects is it's like the last minute thing you do on a film it's like you're, Which, you're like a month out from releasing the film, sometimes two, and you're like, okay, let's get a composer now. It's like actually, crazy. Can I can I bring up something where... Go um, for it. So there, there used to be this really uh, good uh, film essay channel on YouTube called Every Frame, Every Frame of Painting, and we both liked it. And they kind of ended with this um, kind of poorly received episode about film scoring. Yeah. Um, and they were kind of going around talking about the danger of temp scores. And I actually don't think that that's necessarily the problem, right? I actually think it has everything to do with the, with where scoring exists within the post-production process. Um, hmm. And it is always this last minute thing. And I'm. Well, tell me real fast what temp scoring is because. Uh, so temp scoring is where you take a, a soundtrack from another movie and lay it in over the edit. Oh, and, and you do that to sort of figure out what you like, what you don't like, and to feel it. I get right. that. I know what that is. I didn't know the term for it. And you're saying that's not as big of a deal. What it is right. is go on. And, and the the problem is they they finalize the edit. They start doing all this other stuff to it, and they get themselves to a point where they can't really change the edit um, when the actual score is written. Right. So the actual score just has to mimic the temp score really hard. Um, and there's not really an option for the composer, right? Yeah. Um, it's not that the composer is just phoning it in, you know, it's just that they have very little room to wiggle. Um, and yeah, so little time. Yeah. And when you look at like, for example, when you look at how 
um, Spielberg and there's a there's an awesome little documentary on how Spielberg and uh, E.T. were or sorry, uh, John Williams were doing E.T. You okay. know, and they literally had John Williams sitting there with the orchestra conducting with the editor in the edit in, in the booth playing the movie for John Williams as he's composing this or, or as he's conducting this or- orchestra. Right. Yeah. Um, and um, whenever you think of whenever you think of scores that were really impactful on a movie, uh, let's say uh, Hans Zimmer's time or not time. Um, what's it called? What was the one in Inception? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, it's Interstellar. Hans Interstellar, the song in Interstellar. I forget what it's called. There, I'll look it up. Just keep going. Um, I think it's just home. Um, probably that sounds right, but, um, I think you were the one that told me the story about how, uh, they went to the church and they found an organ. No, no, not that, not that, that one, but the one where he went to Hans Zimmer with like a page of the script and asked him to write. Oh yeah. No, he went there with like a paragraph and it was like about, uh, like, uh, like a family, movie about loving your family like that's what he described the movie as like not a giant like space opera you know yeah and uh so and he's like oh and also you have to use a church organ church organ so i i think it was actually yeah so um but anyways uh that's the right time to bring in a composer right (laughs) yeah before (laughs) you even shoot the movie right um that's a great idea and you don't have to bring them in it bring him in that early even like even if it's right at the beginning of uh of post-production that's right time yeah yeah um and it it should be i feel like the um well here's the scary thing is some people don't even get a month there's a lot of movies that are edited in like one or two months right exactly but even if it's not the final score even if you have a little bit to work with on the edit that's all you need and then when the final um, score comes in there should be kind of this re-editing process right mm. i think it's so much more important that you get that synced up than it is to get um um you know yeah i i CG agree with thing. you i can't imagine this idea that the music comes after you know what i mean like it seems so backwards to me it's like you should have the score at some point like in the middle to like two-thirds thrill your edit yeah like, I think uh, I think another reason is because it's better so to few... edit to a score than to score and edit in many ways. Right, right. But the problem is that I feel like score is invisible in production. Like you're, when you're thinking about the movie in production, there's very yeah. few people that are considering that. Right. True. Um, and it's hard to consider that. And you kind of need to, especially if you're not a musician, it's hard to consider what the score is going to be. Um, which is why I think, uh, I don't know if Christopher Nolan's a musician or not, but I think that might be why he goes to Hans Zimmer every time before production. Yeah. Right. Because, because since he's not, uh, especially if he's not a musician, I don't know if he is, but especially if he's not, that would make a lot of sense because he wants to understand what the score is going to be like. So when he's in production, he can make decisions with that in mind. I mean, I've even listened to directors, uh, talk about how they have, a composer working on like themes and everything while they're in production. And then they like listen to the music while they're making the movie in production. And like, that sounds oh, yeah. like way I've better. To- I've totally listened to songs um, <laughs> that I'm, I was going to put into the movie while this I was is why shooting it. I right? even think like, this is why 
uh it's not such a bad idea uh to if if you want to i don't i'm not against this like philosophically the idea that you could just you know use pre-made music in your movie like whether it's classical music or anything like you could just use that as your score and this way you already know you know well, and Tarantino I mean, does that a lot. Like Terrence most of Malick his movies, does that a lot too. Exactly, he uses like great like uh, uh, operatic music, uh, like Christian chanting and stuff like that, and great classical music, and it totally works. And then there's right. a huge benefit to that rather than getting your music after the film has been edited. You know, right, right. Um, yeah, I think it's always funny when directors have very like. Um, like adamant stances on music hmm. um like what particularly comes to mind is i think it was during the oscars tarantino made a remark about how uh what's his face ennio morricone was like the only good producer the only good composer <laughs> or the only real composer in hollywood <laughs> and you know you have like john williams sitting right there who is respected almost universally around the entire world for composing yeah you know and um many others right not yeah, just people insane. that phone it in and you know Hans zimmer max richter i forget right, the, right. the guy you love that works with mizaki <laughs> uh uh joe saishi yeah yeah uh, he's crazy one of my favorites but um yeah for him to stand in front of all those that's just tarantino genius in his mouth right yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, um okay well let's let's move it on let's let's end it here and uh let's talk about one more thing what do you think the message of the movie was nick i honestly don't know i i, I think it's really simple i think it's just about a guy growing into a warrior and a love story you know what i mean it's Sort of, but I also feel like the ending being changed really screwed with it. Yeah. Um, I think the last shot sums it up in the sense that it's about a love story. This right. is really what it is. It's just the triumph of love. And but, it's about a guy going from coward <laughs> to warrior, you know? Yeah, but so. that's that's not really an insight, right? Those are just tropes. Um, I know, but that's what, that's what <laughs> you can say this movie's about. <laughs> <laughs> um and that can be an insight. It's just not an amazing one, really. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's just, yeah. It's no, a standard, I mean, simple message, you know. I do so. wonder. I I do kind of want to read the um, light novel the or the manga novel. and just like see from that perspective what the inside of the original story was supposed to be. Because I wonder if this, because you know, I like this movie as a movie. Um, and I know a lot of people like the third Harry Potter movie as a movie, right? Yeah. But as a fan of the books, I hate that movie, right? And I, it's not that I think it's a bad movie. I think it's actually a really good movie, you know? Yeah. But I hate it because of what it did to the source material. Um, yeah, we talked about this on the first episode. Yeah, and I, I, I yeah. wonder... Alfonso. I wonder if this is a similar case where the the maybe Doug Lehman, right? Just took a piss all over the graphic novel, <laughs> right? Maybe, maybe, <laughs> uh, maybe. maybe. I, I actually don't, I, I shouldn't say that because I don't know what it was about, but just judging by the plot summary here where they kind of have to decide who lives and who dies right after he 
Oh, oh, also he mortally wounds her. And as she's dying, he confesses her his feelings to her. Mm. Yeah, like that that's I don't know. Um I also think that's another thing that you could either view it as an arc or part of the insight, part of the message is death, because there's this transition from being afraid of death from the very beginning of not wanting to be part of the war. And right. also from her like killing him several times during training when he like cripples himself mm-hmm. to his moment of self-sacrifice. And in, you know, in this story, the moment of self-sacrifice of both of them, but mostly himself, because he has an issue with sacrificing himself and then eventually he doesn't have the issue anymore, but then he has an issue with sacrificing her. Right. And at the very end, he has to both sacrifice himself and her. But then of course, happy ending, uh, the day gets reset and he gets to have both his own life and her. So. Mm. But I will say, the ending shot, the ending beat, the ending pop song, it leaves you with a great feeling. And we have a lot of almost negative things to say, but this is like a really enjoyable movie, and it's actually really good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And let let me also say this, too, before we kind of move out of this. Um, I'm not sure if we could do better. Like, <laughs> agreed you know, i'd be like, happy if i made this i'd be so fucking me happy too myself. um like i understand how hard it is to make a film and how many moving parts there are and especially a film of this size um like it's a miracle that people can get through these things and not just you know burn out and crash into the side of a building yeah um so like every single person involved in this has, you know, done their part in successfully making this film. And it's a good film. You know, it's not it's not something that we look at and be like, wow, that was a train wreck, right? Not this whole all. thing was good. Yeah. Um sweet. And and I think I think the only criticism really is that they played it a little safe. Yeah, they played it a little yeah. safe. And we'll have to check out the source material. Maybe if we both read the graphic novel, we'll do an episode on it. Yeah, that'd then be we interesting. can talk about this movie in comparison. But yeah, but um, as for now, that's sort of our uh, our recommendations. Good movie. You should watch it. I think we'll end it there. <laughs>